As Earth Keepers, we hold wisdom about our planet within our bodies learned through lifetimes of experience on Earth and throughout the cosmos. I'm Amy Dempster, a shamanic practitioner and your host for the Earth Keepers podcast, and I'm on a journey to reconnect with my soul family, the other Earth Keepers, grid workers, portal tenders, land stewards, and nature lovers around the world. On this podcast, you won't find gurus or dogma, just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Welcome back to the Earth Keepers podcast. This is the third episode of season two, where we're diving deep into reclaiming our sacred plant partnerships. If you missed the first two episodes where we talked more about our ancient ancestors' relationships with plants, go back and listen to those after this episode to get a bit of context for how humanity was long connected with the natural world before the time of Christianity, which we're going to discuss just a bit more today before we shift into talking more about what we can do to reclaim these practices and help regenerate our local ecosystems. The early Christian church had a deep desire to disconnect the people from their ceremonies and rituals that largely happened in nature and through their day-to-day practices in their homes. I wanted them to accept their God and their traditions as the one and only truth. It was an effort that took hundreds of years to complete. And just think about that. Generation after generation of religious dogma that became increasingly violent in order to carry out its doctrine. And although there's still bits and pieces of wisdom that survived a thousand years of witch trials and burnings, much of it is lost to us today, at least in terms of written documentation. As Spirit has told me many times over the years, nothing is really lost. It still exists in that moment in time, and we can journey to connect with whatever time and whatever wisdom we wish to find. And as amazing as it would be to recreate all of that ancient knowledge, I would also argue that even if we'd had lineages to pass it down to us, it would have been altered and changed through time anyway. As people shifted and moved across continents, working with different ecosystems and landscapes, and as weather patterns changed over many years, the ceremonies and rituals would have changed too, which is to say, we need new practices for this moment in time. And we're the people who can create them. As we work with the earth and the trees and the plants and the mountains and the waters, we can let them teach us again, just as our ancestors would have done in their time. And that's some of what we're exploring on this season of the podcast. But before we get into today's episode, where we're going to spend a bit more time exploring how we got to this modern idea of dominion over nature... Let me just share that if you're feeling called into an even deeper relationship with our allies here on planet Earth, I would love to have you join me in the Earth Tenders Academy. Reclaiming our ancient ancestral connection with this planet and the spirits of the land and learning to speak their language can bring such a richness to our day-to-day experience here on Earth. If you want to learn more about the history and the energy in the community that you live in, hold space for the healing of humanity and nature, remember more about your specific gifts and role with the earth and see the true magic held in your everyday environment, I invite you to step into this portal with me and hundreds of other earth tenders from around the world. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about the Earth Tenders Academy and join our beautiful community. Now, 
let's get back to talking about nature, or rather the earth in general, because what usually comes up in any kind of analysis or explanation for how we as the human race got this idea that we could use or abuse the earth to our own benefit is from the Bible. Actually, both the Bible and the Torah say, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth. And then they go on to instruct the reader to fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. The Quran notes that he has subjected to you whatever is in the heavens and whatever is on earth. So, yeah, this has been the core belief of Western theology, that man's role and perhaps duty is to have dominion over the earth. Now, I've always believed that there's a bit of a misinterpretation here, that the intention was not of human dominion over but more of a collective human responsibility to properly steward the resources we have inherited to the benefit of all life on Earth. How could it be any other way? Why would the instructions for life on Earth, if you want to believe that's the purpose of these ancient texts, include the idea that the ecosystem that we're a part of is somehow not critical to our future survival on this planet? Now, I suppose you could argue that they had no way of knowing that as a species, we would invent fracking or a floating garbage patch in the ocean bigger than the size of Texas. But if these works were indeed channeled by source energy, at least at the beginning, then of course source knew all of the potential timelines humans could and would create. And why wouldn't these texts intend to share the most vital wisdom we would need to live happy and healthy lives on this planet. So I was curious, what did this word dominion really mean? And has the past 2,000 years of evolution been one big misunderstanding? Perhaps, because the Hebrew word for dominion is rada, and please excuse my anglicized pronunciation, but this word is used about a dozen times in the Old Testament. For example, Rada is used in Ezekiel 34, 4, which shows the wrong type of Rada. The Rada by the uncaring shepherds in this verse shows an attitude that God condemns by saying, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have rada them harshly and brutally. In other words, in simply taking what is needed for personal use from the flock while not properly caring for them, you have not justly ruled over them. So then, back in Genesis, where we're told that we are created in the image of God, we see that rada or dominion, is not for our own sake, but for the sake of all creation. It is our duty as humanity to help heal the sick, help the injured, bring back those who stray, and search for those who are lost. We rada creation, or rather rule over or have dominion over caring for the earth and all of its inhabitants. We were meant to develop and refine and beautify it for the betterment of all, not just one. 
And if humanity was originally called upon to rule over or steward creation in the image of God, how should we interpret that? It makes sense to me that we would strive to reflect the nature or frequency of God, source, or the universe. And what frequency is that? It's love. A deep and reverent love for ourselves and for all of life on earth. And I would argue that idea was the basis for most of humankind's reverence for nature for thousands of years before the Bible, Torah, or Quran arrived on the scene. It was their religion before they knew what religion was. Early humans believed that everything in their environment was part of their existence and part of a collective consciousness. Every event had a cause, every action resulted in a reaction, keeping the entire world in balance. There was no concept of right or wrong, and thus no sin. There were taboos specific to each clan or tribe, mostly established to protect the well-being of the entire group. Breaking those taboos might result in physical danger or punishment within the clan, but certainly nothing like being sent to hell for eternal damnation. Early humans, as far as we can understand them today without any written records, tried to grasp the meaning of life by loving and living it to its full potential. They watched the star-filled skies, rejoiced in the daily return of the sun, celebrated the excitement of the hunt, the ecstasy of sex, and the miracle of birth, while knowing that they themselves were an integral part of the life force of Earth. And that at the end of their lives, they too would return to the Earth to nourish that collective life force for many generations to come. So you can see the sudden culture shock that came along with the conquering warriors to nearly every continent and island in the world, as these Nature-honoring traditions were banned and replaced with the idea of good and evil and the judgment of a god that most humans now needed a priest to access. Tony Van Rentergem does a good job explaining this culture clash in his book, When Santa Was a Shaman, The Ancient Origins of Santa Claus and the Christmas Tree, which surprisingly dives much deeper into ancient shamanic practices than the title may allude to. I'll link to it in the show notes in case you want to check it out. He shares about how our ancient ancestors would have felt very close to the trees in their forests and been familiar with the many nature spirits that lived there. These relationships between man and nature would have been honored and acted out by a tribe shaman during rituals and ceremonies. The shaman him or herself would have been the voice of the spirits of nature and the humans, the mediator between the planes, establishing the love, thanks, and respect for all. The forest provided absolutely everything for early humans. Humans were grateful for its offerings, and the forest was grateful for the stewardship or divine love offered to it by humankind. And so each community shaman or medicine person was integral in the physical, mental, and spiritual health of their people. Now, the shaman had two main jobs. The first was that of a spiritual guide and teacher demonstrating how their tribe could stay in harmony with the forces of nature that surrounded them. They often did that by interpreting and acting out messages from nature during ceremonies. And the second role was much more material in nature. Shamans were often the cook, the keeper of ancestral knowledge, the astronomer, mathematician, timekeeper, judge, historian, and bard. 
They taught by song and by story, and oversaw all rituals of hunting, war, reproduction, birth, life, and death. They used sound, music, dancing, masks, makeup, costumes, and art, as well as fire, sex, and violence, to create entertaining, entrancing, and educational performances for the community. Think of that the next time you're watching a TikTok video that's imparting some sliver of ancient knowledge in a 15-second production, or laughing at a spiritual meme that hits a bit too close to home. Modern shamans are doing their best to work with the communication mediums of our modern culture to spread their message. Anyhow, in ancient times, shamans would often appear masked as the physical embodiment of the spirit of nature they were communing with sometimes under a trance or influence of plant medicines, as we discussed in more detail in episode one. Of course, these traditions are still very much alive in some parts of the world. Now, as time went by, more people began to understand astronomy and calendars and how to make the calculations necessary to predict many of the important dates on the wheel of the year, as only shamans had previously done. And many of these early scientists, instead of becoming shamans, instead began to found the early priesthoods and secret brotherhoods, carefully guarding their magical knowledge and surrounding it with encoded words and rituals to make it harder for outsiders to learn. It wasn't long before the warrior kings figured out that by working together with the priesthood, the partnership of physical power with scientific and emotional power would secure absolute power over the people. And you can see an example of this long-standing tradition with the Queen of England. She's not only the queen of the realm, but also the head of the Church of England. You can see why the desire to separate church and state was so strong by early American settlers. Now, as idyllic as it might sound, life wasn't always perfect for early pagans. Once the simple world of communal hunter-gatherers gave way to agriculture and animal husbandry, Overpopulation reduced the hunting grounds, and greed became a totally new issue. In some places, there were shamans who abused their power and witches who used their knowledge to poison rather than to cure. Then as new warlike tribes began to invade the land, the indigenous people in the area were forced to withdraw and hide along the fringes of the newly established societies, in the forests, marshes, and mountain ranges. In Europe, the people of the old pagan world were very small in stature compared to the tall, powerful men that were invading their lands. They were nomadic and highly mobile with carts and cavalry, and they had totally different concepts of the gods. These gods were mainly mythical middlemen who were a collection of nature spirits, ancient folk heroes, chiefs, and founding fathers. And they were the controllers of nature and man. And they were much like these invaders and the new aristocracy that was installed. Fickle and dangerous figures with reputations for raping, killing, and robbing both each other and the humans. To survive in this new theology, one had to make deals with the gods, much like they had to make deals with their new rulers. And so, little by little, one conquered land at a time, being in harmony with the land, communal sharing within the tribe, and equal rights were replaced by a male-dominated, warlike culture, expressing what they believed was a God-given right that the strongest became the ruling class, along with their ruling gods. This concept of dominion over involved perpetual growth, taking without asking, 
war, and the forceful readjustment of the environment to fulfill people's needs and wishes, rather than in balance with nature. Sound familiar? Because it's the lifestyle and belief system that's been handed down to us, and it's the bedrock of our current culture. And we're feeling the strain of these unsustainable ideas. But it's that pain and strain that's pushing us to look for something different. To acknowledge that just because we've been doing it for 2,000 years doesn't make it right. None of the institutions we've been initiated into during our lifetime are as immovable as we think. They were all created in recent history, some with good intentions and some without. I mean, the Vatican instigated the Crusades in the name of Christ and then killed hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children identified as heretics by the church. Many of them were Aryan Christians who disobeyed the Vatican's orders and translated the gospel from Latin, allowing the common man to hear about Jesus' revolutionary teachings. Kind of hard to grasp in today's culture that people were burned alive for sharing a bit too much knowledge about Jesus. What was it they wanted to share in that time that the church wanted to keep hidden? Whatever the teachings that needed to be kept under wraps in order to hold up the idea of church and state as the absolute power, eradicating any beliefs counter to this creation was a top priority. So it's no surprise that many of the medieval pagans converted to Christianity at sword point, and the remaining little people retreated to the ancient forest, destined to become part of fairy tale and lore, as if they'd never actually existed on the physical plane at all. But as much as the rich and powerful have tried to wipe them from our collective consciousness, these memories still live on today. People like Max Dashu, who I interviewed last week, wasn't deterred when men in the academic realms, a realm that today operates similarly to the early priesthoods and brotherhoods guarding the wisdom of the arts and sciences for only those who can afford it, told her that there was no women's history. And she made it her life's mission, or as she said, obsession, to document how much history there really was and to reclaim some of that ancestral wisdom for us today and not let anyone tell us that if it wasn't written down, it wasn't important or it didn't happen. But if you're here listening to this podcast, I'm guessing you've had at least some experience where you've connected with that wisdom, whether in a dream or a park or your own backyard. The memories of a different time are coming to us in whispers and emotions and visions from the ancient forests. The trees remember, and the people who remember aren't as far away as we think. They're reminding us how it used to be, and asking us to find a new way, to remember that dominion is actually rara for all of creation, care, stewardship, love. And I don't think there's one answer for how we get back there, although we're going to explore a few in the coming weeks. But I think if we approach all that we do in love and reverence for the earth and all who inhabit it, and ask ourselves if our ingrained behaviors are serving all of humanity, or if they're created to support a select few, I think we'll start to find our way back, one person and one choice at a time. If you're feeling like the Earth Tenders Academy could support you in your remembering, don't forget to check out the link in the show notes. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here on the Earth at this moment in time. And I'll see you back here next Tuesday.
Thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so honored to share this journey with you. I would love it if you join me and other Earth Keepers from around the world in the Following Hawks Earth Keepers community on Facebook. To find the show notes, additional resources, or learn more about working with me, go to earthkeeperspodcast.com. Until next time, I'll see you in the multiverse.